When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Taking Care of Lady Business, where we put the business back in lady business. Hosted by Jennifer Justice, founder and CEO of the Justice Department, a management strategy and law firm that works with female and woke male entrepreneurs, executives, talent, brands, and creatives to build and maximize their wealth, focusing in the areas of tech, consumer product, finance, media, entertainment, and fashion. Jennifer interviews entrepreneurial women who have done it all, who will be sharing their secrets on all things business, especially as a woman. These highly successful women will share strategies and insights, including what not to do and what it takes to win. And now, here's your host, Jennifer Justice. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this edition of Taking Care of Lady Business. Today, we're venturing a bit into the music industry, um, but more, you know, genre specific, but, you know, still talking about business in general. We are today speaking with the amazing hyphenate of Binta Brown, who her current current job is head of operations at Keep Cool, which is record label, as well as a founder and CEO of Oma Lily Projects. Welcome, Binta. Hi. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for um, coming on today. You're located in Chicago, yes? Yep. Right. So let's talk a little bit about what you're doing now, what this means, head of operations at this at the record label and Omalili projects. And then we're going to get into how you got there. Awesome. So I'm going to start with Omalili projects first. Um, so Omalili is Omadel and Lillian. Those are my two grandmothers. And after my father passed away, people ask me about this all the time. They're like, what? After my father passed away, I wanted to make sure that the matriarchs of my family were embedded in everything that I was doing. And so I said, all right, my, my business, like the thing that I do every day, I'm going to call it Oma Lily after both my grandmothers. So that every day, every time I'm sending out an email, anything that I'm doing, the women who like led our family are part of what I'm doing, that they're not just in my DNA, but that they're in my corporate and my professional and my money-making DNA. Right. Um, because it weren't for them and the example they set, I wouldn't be here. So Oma Lily is a artist management company. We do production. I work on a variety of different documentaries, uh, theatrical production, all kinds of different things that is around the art of storytelling and helping storytellers and helping storytellers run their businesses and build and scale their businesses. And then keep cool is my, what I call my salary job. Um, Equally important uh, in a joint venture with RCA founded by Tunji and Jared uh, Sherman and um, Courtney Stewart, who manages Khalid. And there I look after the day-to-day business and I keep the wheels turning, you know, and make sure that, you know, that the artists are getting what they need and that their music is coming out and that it's getting scheduled and that the deals are getting done and that, and that we're operating, you know, right. and it's, it's really basically 
everything you could possibly imagine, um, including in some cases, you know, there, one of our artists ended up without management. So stepping in to make sure that it didn't seem like they don't have management. So um, you're talking in, it's all in the music industry, including all Oma Lily? Yep. Oma Lily too. And the, are there artists that you want to talk about, like that you manage now? Just give a shout out to you so people will listen. I want to give a huge, huge shout out to Dan Jess. They are, these sisters, I've never worked with anybody quite like them. The amount of confidence and drive and nobody should have to have as much resilience as they have. <laughs> Right. But they have it. And there's nothing that keeps them from continuing and moving forward and learning and listening every single day. So huge shout out to Van Jess. They're amazing. And I'm going to give a shout out to Peter Cottontail, too, um, whom I've been managing for a while. Peter is uh, primarily known for producing for Chance, whom I used to work for. Chance the Rapper, um, that is. Yeah. Chance the Rapper. And the reason why I'm giving Peter a shout out is because... When there is a man in my life who has a care for women that is truly genuine and is really about like he puts women on without thinking about it, you know, like it's like deeply embedded his care and love and respect. I mean, he's a complete feminist and it's extraordinary and beautiful. And it's part of the reason why we have the most amazing working relationship. And I want very every- rare in the music industry, right? I'm sorry? Very rare in the music industry. It's extremely rare. I mean, I, I want to clone him and make every man in our business like him. Yeah. I really do. I think we just released um, on our, uh, in our newsletter that it's something like the Annenberg Inclusion Initiative. They said that um, there's only like 16% women um, in the music industry that are in executive capacity. Yeah. Crazy. And, you know, I don't have to remind anybody that we are 50% of the population. So, right. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, okay. So, oh, it's actually 14%. I was actually looking up the fact that only 14% of music companies are led by female CEOs, chairwomen, or presidents. So, yeah. Um, but there are a lot of us in there, which is how we all know each other. And it's, you know, it's small business, right? Um, yeah. So tell, tell us how you got here, how you got to the journey in the music industry. A lot of people talk about how getting in, it's a very difficult industry to get in. Um, and it's kind of who you know. But so give us your insight and how you I did. didn't know anybody. <laughs> I know. Wow. Like, which, is, which is crazy. And I'm still getting to know people. I'm still getting to understand people in this business, which is an insane business, as you know. Um, yeah. So I started my career on Wall Street. And it's funny because to me, the way I started my career in music makes a lot of sense because I look at people like Jeff Harleston or Clive Davis, who were not music attorneys, but who were Wall Street or New York-ish type lawyers who found their way. And it didn't even occur to me that I couldn't do exactly the same thing. Yeah. Um, So in reading about Wall Street as an attorney or Wall Street as like a financial I was a Wall Street M&A attorney. Yeah, so was I, I, I was a litigator in Wall, a Wall Street. Lit, yeah. I, you know, I didn't realize that you were on Wall Street before you went into Yeah, I, went to, I was at Hughes, Hover, and Reed for a year and a half. So you know what I got to do? I got to start telling when people ask me this question. I would I need to say, did you know that Jennifer Justice also started her career the same way? And, you know, another person who started on Wall Street is Sylvia. Yeah. You know, like... So, so it didn't even occur Sylvia to me. Sylvia Rohn, that is. Sylvia Rohn. Yeah. Yes. So it didn't even occur Lucky. to me that, that I couldn't 
that that was a weird way to start in the record business, you know? Right. So I, you know, I read all about Oprah and all about ownership and equity and all these different things. And there are all these people who are inspiring me, you know, when I was coming up and I, I always knew that I wanted to work in the music business, that I eventually wanted to run a music company of some sort. So went to law school when I graduated from law school, I started my career at a firm called Cravath, Swain & Moore. Cravath represented Universal Music Group, Washington Post Company, HBO, mm-hmm. like at Viacom. We were involved in the Vivendi acquisition of UMG, which is really funny to me how it's come full circle now. Um, in fact, one of my former partners, not at Cravath, but at Kirkland, where I was a partner for almost a decade, he's like, yeah, you know that I represented Bill Ackman. I'm like, yeah, I did know that. Right. <laughs> I know that you, and I said, why didn't you call me? Um, you know, so I, I started on Wall Street. I, I went to Cravath. I learned all of the corporate stuff. I did mergers and acquisitions. I did secure transactions. I did IPOs. I probably did 50 different um, IPOs across media, entertainment, technology, um, and telecom companies. And I remember saying to one of my friends when I was still at Cravath, if I'm still doing this in five years, you should shoot me because I'm really just not trying to do this for the rest of my career. Yeah. I'm trying to go and run one of these companies. And, you know, in those days, you know, the music business was frothy and things were going really great. And, you know, I would occasionally get these calls from different record labels in New York saying like, hey, would you be interested in coming along and, you know, being our general counsel? And there's one, I'll leave the name of it out for now, but I think that it's for the best, but it didn't work out. I'll never forget this. I was getting into a yellow cab, my Blackberry goes off and it says, don't, you should not, don't show up. And it, then I, you know, get back to my desk. I go upstairs. I'm reading uh, something somewhere. Some, I, I guess it was on the internet. And somebody said, yeah, the FBI just raided this label. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that, I'm glad that that didn't work out. Um, <laughs> yeah. Don't show up right now. Yeah. Like, I think show, I know who you're talking about, right by the way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, go ahead and go, go Google that. Uh, don't, don't, don't show up right now. We've just been raided. And so I was like, all right, it's not meant to be. Um, and, you know, then I got to work on the separation of DreamWorks Animation from DreamWorks LLC. And I helped take DreamWorks Animation public uh, while I was at Cravath. I thought about moving to L.A., but it wasn't music. That's film, which I also love. Um, but I wasn't ready to make the, the move cross country. And so somewhere in the middle of all of my mental meanderings, one of my clients apparently told somebody at Kirkland that I was ready to leave Cravath. And Kirkland called me up and said, hey, we want to make you a partner. We don't want to just make you a partner. We want to like advance you several years in. So like I was going to go over and be like the equivalent of a third or fourth year partner. I remember calling my dad and saying like, should I do this? And he was like, yeah, like worst case scenario is like you make a lot of money for one to two years and then you go and do what you want to do. Right. Um, so that's what I did. I ended up practicing law, a lot corporate Wall Street lawyer stuff, a lot longer than I wanted to or anticipated practicing, but it prepared me really well. Um, I started getting more involved in startups in the startup space and advising a bunch of different startup companies. And I helped a few of them go public. And when I had a little bit of savings from that and from my legal career, my dad at one point, I'd had some serious health issues um, and I'd started gigging in bands. I play the electric bass and keys and uh, saxophone now, but not then. And my father had come up for a show and he's like, what are you doing? You know, he's like, why are you pretending like you're a corporate lawyer? He's like, you want to work in music? You should go work in music. And I'm like, and I, you know, I had all of the different excuses of like, dad, I've met with this person or I've met with that person. And I haven't, 
met any anyone where it feels right or where it makes sense to me. And he's like, it's not going to feel right to you. He's like, it's not going to feel right to you for a lot of different reasons. He said, so just start your own thing. He's like, just do it. Your mother and I believe in you. He said, you'll probably fail miserably. He's like, you'll lose all your money. All of this is true, by the way. He's like, you're going to make so many mistakes. He said, but I believe in you and you can always come home and like figure it out from home. So I was like, well, you know, if my black Southern Christian conservative father is telling me to leave my perch as a partner at a big firm in New York to do something as crazy as work in music, I should do it. So I didn't know anybody. I didn't know anything. I just read as much as I possibly could watch as much as I possibly could on YouTube. You know, I would be standing out in New York street corners and, you know, expensive wall street attorney suits, handing out flyers, promoting shows and promoting different artists, local artists, and met a couple of artists that way. And would try to, whenever I would go to shows, I would try to meet people and say like, Hey, what can I do? How can I help you? And, you know, one thing leads to the next. And, you know, there's somebody who said like, can you, can you help me build a label? And I said, sure, of course I can. Like, why not? So I started working with this one artist and it was a really interesting experience. At the same time, like Chance was starting to become really big. He had just dropped acid rap. I started reading more and more about him. I was amazed because his vision for what the music business could be was consistent with my vision of what the music business could be. And also the reason why every time my father and I talked about it, my dad was like, yeah, he's like, if you go and work for a label, he's like, you're going to get fired. Like they don't want artists to be independent like that. Mm -hmm. He said, you're talking about using the technology in different ways to create fairer contracts and more ownership. He said, but that's not how the, like, first of all, the business is in free fall. You know, it's totally bottoming out. And he said, secondly, he's like, nobody has time for you coming in from the outside to try to transform things, which is why he said, start your own thing. So one thing leads to the next. I find myself in a recording studio with Chance a couple years after, like not even a couple years after that. But shortly after that, I start talking with his manager. His manager says, why don't you come out to Chicago? And I'm like, to do what? And he's like, you know, I want you to basically run Chance's recorded music and publishing operations. So I did that for a few years. I put out all of his albums. I set them up for commercial release. Um, After Chance and his former manager parted ways, I continued doing that with Chance for a little while just to make sure, you know, like I have this thing. Once you've been in representation, like you don't just leave when the job isn't finished yet. Like you keep doing it until the job is done. So I continued working with him. I helped his brother out with a couple of different things. And somewhere in the middle of that, I started managing Peter, um, who is a very dear friend and creative collaborator. And, um, you know, like by this point, we're starting to get closer and closer to the pandemic. And, you know, Peter and I, like we really kind of took off during the pandemic because he put out his first uh, debut project in the midst of the pandemic. And to all of our surprise, you know, it was a year where he did better. Uh, You know, it's been a year and a half where he's done better overall financially than he's done at any point. So, you know, we've been defying the odds. And at some point I had met Tunji. I think I met Tunji maybe five years ago, um, probably because I read an article about him. And I'm pretty sure that if you had access to some of your old email addresses, you have an email from me somewhere in there. Yeah. Um, And it might've been because I would just send, I would just send emails to people saying like, Hey, 
I'm new to the music business. I don't know anything, but I'm smart and really good. And I'm going to be really good. I just don't know anybody. Um, and can we be friends? Can we get a coffee? And I think that you would probably, I think I did send you something and you had just left, uh, I think the firm, either the, the firm or you just left uh, Jay or I can't remember what it was. What? So what year was just, it that I you just, started working with when you moved to Chicago? I moved to Chicago probably like 20, like I effectively moved to Chicago in 2018. Oh, okay. I had been in and out of Chicago since 2016. Okay. Like I've been going back and forth. You were working and- with Chance from 2016. Not technically. I was working with one of his collaborators. Ah, oh, got it. Got it. Got and it. That and, and I was super, super focused on working with his collaborator. And then the team was like, well, maybe you should come and be working with us. Yeah. I was like, all right. So, um, so when you were doing that, okay, so you were an M and A attorney, and you were doing all of these big like deals, right, for multi million, hundreds of million dollar companies, billion dollar companies, etc. And then, and in a big firm environment, and then you start going to work in the music industry. I mean, like, what was that transition? I mean, was it like, I mean, you're doing like the bottom nuts and bolts of work, right? Like. Right. What exactly, what were the things that you were doing? Um, in the music business? Yeah, I know. Well, yeah, when you were doing it, like, I mean, honestly, you operating like, as a lawyer or you just went like, and just straight into like operations. I was doing business affairs work. Yeah. Um, like, which mostly. is what to you like define? Cause that, I think there's a definition, a different definition of that than other industries. I define it as negotiating every contract. Mm-hmm. And setting up, I define it as business development. I define it as legal. I define it as if there is a business relationship that's being negotiated or structured. Um, I define it as that. I define it as strategy because when I came into the music business, one of the things, and like working with managers and small management companies, you know, and, and people talk about this all the time, there's so many people who are in the music business who don't have the corporate training and the corporate yeah. experience. And it's not that we get lucky. People work really hard. People are hustling, but they don't have that additional set of knowledge. But what they do know is enough to be able to figure out how to take their artists from zero to like superstar. And it's not necessarily an overnight thing. It can take anywhere from four to 10 years, you know, to go from the beginning to the bigness, to the ceiling, whatever a ceiling is for an artist. And there's not always that much time to become sophisticated in terms of how you negotiate from a corporate perspective. Mm-hmm. And a lot, of, a lot of managers leave it to attorneys. Um, they leave it or they leave it to other people or they just kind of wing it. And so I told people, I said, you know, my job when I started working on Chance's team was I was supposed to be like the Jennifer Justice of, of Chicago. You know, and, <laughs> and you're referring and, to me like being in like the... Um... Like in Jay-Z and Rock Nation. Yeah, exactly. You know, like putting putting it together, like putting some shape and some contour on it. And, you know, I I also said, you know, sort of like the Sheryl Sandberg, you know, like, you know, like you go in as an operations person, start creating a business around this thing that these guys have been working on and putting some structure on it. So, you know, putting like, you know, making sure that everything stays in the wheels like women do why we come in and clean everything up and like, you know, it's it's why my company is called Oma Lily. And why, and, and when you're doing this, um, how many women were, were around? None. Except for the ones I hired. 
Right. You were the only. I've only and I've actually, I've only ever hired women. There's yeah. one guy. I probably shouldn't say this. My attorneys would say, don't do this. But like, there was one guy I hired and I was like, this is not, your work ethic is not compatible with what I'm trying to achieve. It's not compatible. I love it. So, not compatible. So this isn't going to, so like, this isn't going to work. Right. So I was like, bye-bye. Right. Right. And so then, so what, and then what do you think those skill sets that you had from transitioning from a big Wall Street attorney to then like operating this company to then management? And then how is that different for people who in this, you know, like the people who are listening, they like don't, you know, necessarily know how the music industry works. So, you know, I find that I have to be a lot more gentle with people than I ever had to be with people on Wall Street. Yeah. Like in Wall Street, I could, I'm not saying that I was one of the people who screamed, but I could just be very direct. Yeah. And because everybody was, you know, like there, it wasn't an emotional thing. There was no feelings on Wall Street. It was kind of like, if you're going to stand in the way of a company's billion dollar IPO, you don't want to be that person mm-hmm. ever. You know, like in the music business, there are all of these emotional sensitivities and so much of what we're measuring in the music business is vanity. And so it's taken me, it's, I'm still getting used to, I'm still not good at it. You know, like I still have moments of just being like, what, like, what's wrong? Like, come on, like, let's go. But like, there are these moments of just needing to be deeply sensitive and, you know, like finding another way strategically. But in terms of the nuts and bolts, I mean, the transition was first, my contracts went from being this thick. Yeah. And like to being this thick, but there is so much more risk in a contract that is this thick versus a contract that is this thick. Right. Because in contracts that are like this, you know, like people have really thought. Way, for those people who are just listening, she's being like three inches versus like nothing. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. So like, yeah, three to five inch contracts or like yeah. deal books, like, deal, like, you know, I could have yeah. a deal book that would be the entire wall behind me, which is, yeah. I don't know, 12 feet. Which is like, you know, 70 trees, by the way. That's exactly. Like- and, you know, like record industry contracts. So I can read them a lot faster but I have to read them much more carefully Yeah, because there's so much that's missing. There's so much nuance that's missing out of them. And there's a lot of lore that goes with it as well. And you would not think that a music industry contract would be more complicated because it's shorter than, you know, an IPO or M&A purchase agreement, but they are, they're much more complicated and they're complicated because you're dealing with real people you're dealing with personalities, you're dealing with people who just have sort of like a way of doing business with each other and a common understanding. Things aren't legislated necessarily in the same same kind of way. But there's also a suspicion that the key people and the principal people are not actually reading their contracts. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like to come in and to be a person, you know, like as a manager, the number of attorneys who are like, wait, you're reading the contracts. And I'm like, yeah, like, don't all the yeah. managers read the contracts? No. They're like, no, none of our managers read the contracts. Right. And sometimes that irritates people. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people are grateful. And sometimes some people are overly reliant on the fact that I'm going to actually read the contract and that I'm going to work my way through it. But I do it because how do I put together a strategy for my artist if I don't understand what the rules of the road are? The other reason why I do it is I care profoundly about rights. You know, like I want artists to have, you know, as it needs to be reasonable. You know, like if you're taking a whole lot of money from somebody, you can't expect them to have no rights and no say like that's 
absurd. So finding a way to talk people through, you know, what all of that means is really important. But I want to make sure that the artist is protected and that they have a way uh, that they have dignity in contract. It was one of the reasons why it was really important to me to be in the music business at all, because I saw my uncle lose all of his copyrights. Right. And if he had had his copyrights, then my cousin's and their children would all like their children would be millionaires because he wrote a lot of songs uh, in New Orleans back in the day, but owns zero of the copyrights, owns zero of the intellectual property. So, you know, as a manager, like to me, you're running a business and you're a CEO of a company. So you're looking at the contracts, you're thinking about the strategy, you're thinking about the marketing, but you're also making sure that there's toilet paper on the tour bus. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that is, um, I mean, you, you referenced something before that you were saying, you know, an artist isn't necessarily, they're not overnight, right? It's usually like a four to 10 year career trajectory. They're like many businesses, right? Like when I, you know, they're businesses that flourish and you and I both had the luxury and privilege of being like in, you know, with two different people, me with Jay, Jay Z, you with Chance Rapper. It's like they did things on their terms and grew from nothing to massive. And while they had successes along the way, it's like you can you can lose that unless you build this real foundation and, you know, um, you can build it in a way that like can act will actually not go away versus like an album. You're only as good as your last album. Well, when you had 20 of those, then you're good. You know what I mean? Um, and so you built a real like, you know, catalog and a real business you know, that has real assets. And you're, yeah. diver- I mean, in music also, like, you know, we're diversifying too, right? Because like you said, like, and I've had this experience, obviously, like you can put out an album that doesn't go quite as well as you hope it's going to go, you know? And if you have all of your eggs on live, if you have all of your eggs on, you know, recorded music, you know, like, and you're not looking at all of the different pockets and places where you can be making money and mm-hmm. the deal making that can be, that, that can happen, the partnerships that you can build and facilitate. So I feel very fortunate because on multiple levels, my corporate career, my Wall Street career, it, it served me well in two ways. One, I'm going to get to in a second, but in terms of the day-to-day of how to operate and build a company, you know, I've worked so closely with corporate CEOs who've had to build large companies and sustain them and who've had to hedge risk and to find different ways to continue growing and dealing with different personalities. And while in those those cases, I was oftentimes playing the role of their consigliere um, as opposed to being the person to do it, I was able to learn from them because of my closeness and my proximity to them. You know, like this is how you run and this is how you operate and this is how you structure, like you have a plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you're prepared for the fact that you're not going to always have a good day and you're, you're super patient. The other way that being a corporate lawyer prepared me really well is that because I was working with companies like Time Warner and Universal Music Group, but at the parent and the corporate finance level, I got to understand what the people at the top of the company are really thinking, you know, and these are the companies that are doing deals with our artists yeah, and even artists who are totally independent like like a chance or like a Peter Cottontail, they're still doing deals with these companies, right? Like they're not because and they're doing deals with these companies because they're doing deals with people who are assigned to the companies and have a contractual relationship with them. So understanding and now I'm at one of those companies uh, in addition to management. So understanding how it works from the perspective of, you know, the people who are at the top of Sony, the people who are at the top of Universal Music Group, like how they're financing what they were thinking about as they were preparing to take those companies public, you know, what 
CAA is probably thinking about right now, having just acquired um, ICM and I'm guessing getting ready to take that company public, like understanding how these companies are run and organized, what the boards of directors are thinking, like the, the board members are thinking, it's critically important. I use it as a matter of strategy because it's given me a level of understanding that I wouldn't have had but for that. In some ways, you know, I'm still learning, you know, to be a little bit more sensitive at the artist level and at the manager level and working with, you know, my peers in that regard. On the corporate level, I understand that completely because that's what I was doing. Those were the people I was working with and, and the closest to for, you know, 10 to 15 years. Um, right. I think, um, yeah, no, so that's a really good point because you can understand both sides, which is something that is so necessary as an attorney, um, as understand both sides of the deal and understand how both people can make it. Unfortunately, we don't have that much time left, but I do want to get into one um, other thing, which I think that so many people find surprising. And now that I really focus on representing women, um, I'm surprised at how few of them have attorneys or even when they're C-suite. In the music industry, every single person has an attorney. Everyone knows that that's what you need, whether it be an artist, whether it be their manager has to have an, an attorney negotiating against them, whether that be an executive. Every executive from the time you get into the music industry, you have an attorney negotiating your deal. Right. And so when I got in there, I was like, that's just what everybody does. And so now I go in and I talk to these like, you know, women or, you know, female founded companies or, you know, influencers, other kinds of talent outside of entertainment. Anyway, film TV, that's the same way. And all executives are represented by attorneys. Like no one just signs a contract at all, ever. And then outside of it, it's like, oh, well, no, I just signed this contract. I'm like, you're like the CMO of a company. Like, what do you mean nobody looked at your deal? And in fact, I'm negotiating for somebody right now where an executive recruiter is trying to negotiate directly with my client. And I said, just loop me in. And when she did, he was like, we don't need to bring the lawyers in now. And I was like, what? It's crazy. And I guarantee no men in any corporate setting are without an attorney. They all have attorneys and attorneys negotiate your material terms, including the business terms. So you don't have to, because it's really uncomfortable and awkward. And in particular, women are not great at negotiating for themselves. So it makes it 10 times worse. I was just telling the story yesterday when Jay-Z asked me to come in house and work at Rock Nation. He goes, who am I going to have for an attorney now that like we're negotiating against each other? I said, who am I going to have for an attorney? He's like, you're going to hire one? I was like, yeah, because any attorney that represents himself as a fool for a client. Like, no way. Of course I am. And she ended like, I was going to settle for this X amount of money. And she actually was like, no, you're going to get this. Like, I was like, great. You know? And so, you know, what we, in your experience, it's like, when are you hired? Like, I know the answer, but I just want, you know, everyone else to understand this. When are you hired as an attorney or no of, you know, people getting hired as an attorney? Um, I'm just going to speak from personal experience yeah. because, because I am that non, I'm a music person, but I'm that non-music person who didn't get an attorney once Man. and I will never do that again. <laughs> like when I tell you how much it ended up costing me that I didn't have yeah. that protection, it's, and it didn't have to go that way. All I had to do, it would have been much better for me to spend, you know, 
$15,000, on an attorney as I was setting up my business for the first time than what it ended up costing me, which is like very large number, mm-hmm. um, like many, many times that and the emotional pain. So, you know, like when do you get an attorney? As soon as you start thinking about negotiating a relationship, yeah, whatever the relationship is, yeah. like even if, you know, so like when I'm thinking about it from the perspective of theatrical production, like, like I have the idea that I want to put money in a play. I call my attorney. Like I am thinking, like if I were thinking about leaving a role, I would call my attorney just because I'm thinking about leaving the role, yeah. not because I've left the role, not because I'm accepting another role and not even because I'm interviewing. Like I would call an attorney now, like for any time I'm having the thought because attorneys are trusted advisors and they can help guide you through the thinking, especially the good ones like you, you know, like help guide people through the thinking and what they need to know. And, you know, I was that person you're describing who, when I left, uh, when I left my career and actually I did, when I left my firm, I did call somebody after I'd left and say, Hey, can you look over this stuff? Because I wasn't sure. And I didn't, you know, like those are my former partners. I wanted to make sure that I had a relationship with them. Like, going forward, which was one of the smartest things I could have done because now I'm all friends with them and I do side deals with them all of the time, which is great. Um, serve on boards with them. And that wouldn't have happened if I started getting combative and getting into it with them myself. But for some strange reason, when I first started setting up my business, maybe it's my own arrogance. I was like, well, I'm a really good and successful lawyer and I can do this on my own mm-hmm. and I can figure all of this out on my own. Right. And you know what? I failed. Like I messed up and it cost me an extraordinary amount of money. It cost me psychological pain. It was traumatic for me, not because of the money, but because I, it was sort of like, I couldn't negotiate for myself. I didn't negotiate for myself properly. I didn't ask for the right things and I wasn't protected. Yeah. Um, And what I've come to realize now is that having an attorney and having counsel is actually, it's an act of love. It's an act of self-love. And it's also an act of love for other people around you because you need somebody who is responsible, who's going to be looking at every single word, who's going to be, you know, getting in there so that you can do the thing that you're meant to do, which is to operate the company, to run the company, to, to be the marketing person, you know, to be the investor, whatever your role is, like you need somebody who can interface for you so that you just focus on that. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, my mother laughs at me because she's like, sometimes I think you don't go to the bathroom without calling your attorneys. And I'm like, I don't. Like, cause I, I don't know what's going to happen in there. <laughs> you know, like it's so, so important. Right. And, you know, like the best advice great. that I can give to anybody is look, you know, it doesn't make us as women, it doesn't make us less of a, prof- and I think that this was something I struggled with. It doesn't make me less of an attorney myself. It doesn't make me less of a professional. It doesn't make me less of an executive to have somebody who's by my side. Yeah. And if the guys are doing it, I'm going to do it too. And I'm going to make sure that I have even better people representing me. Because all of it, you're right. Like all of the guys, like all of the guys have protection, like always, all, like always. always. And like, and they, I don't know, sometimes I'm just going to be blunt. I think that men sometimes have the expectation that we're not going to be represented. 
Yeah, I know. I totally agree. And that's why they they say these things. This this person I was just talking about is a a male. Um, And that's why, you know, that's why I started the Justice Department so we could build that matriarchy and give each other business, only each other business. Because the other thing on top of that and all that amazing and great advice you just said and like, is that women need business. And so hire them. Um, I, I, I said, I made this point in an ABA meeting yesterday. Yeah. They do. I said, don't stop doing, stop doing all these mentoring programs, like an environment where, because I see this happen in the music business and on wall street and corporate everywhere. Yeah. If a person doesn't have clients, guess what they don't have a business, a business and money. money. Yes. Hire them and pay 20% more than they, they say, because they're going to, they're undervaluing themselves already. That's the other thing. And don't discount people. You yeah. know, like don't, you should pay people full freight and you should also make sure that you're not charging less because of gender or race or any of that. Exactly. You know, yeah. like my services, I think I, I might've commented on one of your posts recently and I, or somebody put this up and they said, you know, why aren't women, you know, like, why don't people pay? It was on Twitter. It was somebody else on Twitter. And they said something along the lines of why don't people pay? women or minorities as much as they pay like white dudes. And their thinking was like, we should get just as much. And I said, no, 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 no. I said, I expect to get paid more than my white male peers. Like, yeah. period. And there's yeah. a reason for it. I'm really good at what I do. Yeah. You know? So like, if you want me to come on board and to take my time and you want me to risk being involved in what your thing is, like I expect to be compensated fairly. Yeah. And I got a lot of education behind me and a lot of experience. And now I got a lot of relationships, a lot of contacts. I can get in and out of a lot of different places. So you should be willing to pay for that. And if I'm competing against, you know, a 22 year old white male who's, you know, family member was friends with somebody who basically just handed them a chunk of business. I still know that I'm better than that person. Even if my father didn't hand me the chunk of business. Yeah. Well, great advice. The last thing I want to ask, I mean, unfortunately, we got to wrap this up, but like, you know, the one thing let's go to, you have all this great advice, great knowledge coming to us. Let's go to what is the worst advice that you've ever had? Oh my God. I don't even know where to start. Okay. We'll make it short, but yes, let's just, um, I think the, it wasn't advice per se, but the, you could, I'm sure all women could be on there for hours. So let's just like one piece of advice. There you go. So the worst thing that I I've done aside from not getting an attorney when I should have had an attorney, the worst thing that I've done has been looking at some of my male colleagues in the music business and thinking that the way that they were running and operating their businesses was the way I needed to run and operate my business. Right. And that the things that they were telling me about how to run and operate their businesses was the way I was going to be successful. Right. And what I learned was I just need to keep doing Binta Brown and be Binta Brown because yeah. if I try to do it the way, you know, white male in the music business does it, yeah. it's not going to work for me. It's work. <laughs> you know, or anybody. it doesn't yeah. work for them, but it's really not going to work for me. Yeah. So, but I love that. I mean, I, I got so much bad advice. Like we should do a whole nother session. I know. <laughs> Let's go on. Well, until then, thank you so much for coming on. If people want to find you, how can they do that? Um, they can find me at B-A-T-N-I-B on either Instagram or Twitter. And I check my DMs. 
I don't respond to them if it's crazy, but I do check my DMs. So, and do you have anything for Oma Lily projects? Do you have like a website or? I actually do have something for Oma Lily, but I haven't really serviced it. All right. I should. I think I might relaunch something in the next six months. All right. Awesome. Then you have her Instagram. Well, everybody, thank you for showing up. Please remember to like, subscribe, and let us know what other kinds of categories or topics that you want to hear. Thank you for coming to this edition of Taking Care of Lady Business. Until next time, I'm Jennifer Justice. Thank you, JJ. Thank you. Bye.